Well, as we come this morning to Exodus chapter 20, we come to one of the most important and memorable sections, not only of the book of Exodus, but of the entire Old Testament. And I'll go even further, the entire Bible. Because what we begin with here this morning are what we call the Ten Commandments. And I would imagine that many, many people in this world, people that you meet walking up and down State Street, people that you work with, people that you go to school with, even if they couldn't name for you five of the Ten Commandments, they know that they exist. They know that they're out there somewhere. And so it's a very important thing for us to sort of take some time this morning, and actually we're going to do it over a few different Sunday mornings, take a look at these Ten Commandments. But I think it's absolutely essential to understand Before you can understand what the Ten Commandments are, you have to remind yourself about the setting in which they were given. The children of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps numbering two or three million, they came out of Egypt with a mighty hand. God showed his strength, his power, his glory by freeing them from the dominion of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea and providing their needs day in and day out there in the wilderness. But as they were led every day by the uh, pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, that guidance eventually brought them to Mount Sinai. And there camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. God commanded them to set up barriers so they couldn't get very close because God was going to reveal himself in a powerful way there upon the mountain. And he did. He revealed himself in power. He revealed himself in majesty. We saw it all last week, how when God came and revealed himself, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was fire all over the mountain. There was a thick cloud of smoke and glory. We saw how there was earthquakes underneath their feet. We saw how it would have been overwhelming to them visually and spiritually, especially when they heard a trumpet blast sound from heaven. And it grew louder and louder and longer and longer until finally... God spoke from heaven. So please keep all of that in mind, because hearing that voice of God speak from heaven, this is what it said. Verse one. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sixty days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Uh, But in it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you and so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Wow. I mean, can you actually imagine being there? Can you actually imagine smelling the smoke, hearing the voice of God speak from heaven, feeling the earthquake under your feet? Ladies and gentlemen, when God came down and revealed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai, his first words were not so much so, although let me explain in a moment. His first words were not, oh, I'm God and I love you so much. Now, he did express his love to them first off, but not in the way that you and I might expect. When God came down and appeared to them on Mount Sinai, he he didn't come down in a double rainbow. He didn't come down in a cloud of butterflies. He didn't come down, you know, with, with, you know, little babies, you know, singing or something like that. He came down in a way that was frankly terrifying. And when he spoke, he told them of his love. Look back at it in verse one. He says, and the Lord God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Before God commanded them to do anything, he told them of his loving works on their behalf. No, he expressed his love. But you have to admit, he expressed his love in a way that emphasized his authority. And here, God was making a statement to Israel. The statement was very powerful. I am your authority. Israel... Moses is not your ultimate authority. I am, the Lord God said. Israel, you are not your own ultimate authority. No, I, the Lord your God, am. And the whole feeling, the whole sense from here that we sense is that the Lord God was the authority who spoke to Israel from heaven. If you go back to verse 1, just look at it, those words. And God spoke all these words saying, you know, sometimes we read a little verse like that from the Bible and we trip over. and We don't even think about it. Listen, God, the one who reigns in the heavens, the one who created the heavens and the earth with the word of his mouth, the one who rules and disposes the events of mankind, the one who gave his only son to die on our behalf, that God spoke from heaven. And if God speaks, don't you think you and I should listen? Don't you think you and I should regard the voice of God in a different way that we might regard, let's say, the voice of our own heart? If God speaks, we should regard it in a different way than we might regard the voice of, uh, you know, uh, the democratic uh, voting process. Don't you think that we should regard the voice of God as having more authority 
than any human ruler, than any human king. It's the voice of God that spoke. And again, I want to emphasize, when Israel heard these commandments come down, God spoke them from heaven to the people. I mean, we saw it right in the verses that I read to you. In verses 18 and 19, after God was finished, what did the people say? Don't speak to us anymore. Moses, why don't you go up on the mountain and you hear from God and tell us what he said? You see, in reading and thinking through these commandments, it's always to be remembered that Israel first heard these commandments audibly spoken by God in a voice from heaven. I don't know what that voice sounded like. I I don't think it sounded like James Earl Jones. I don't think it sounded like Charlton Heston. I don't think it sounded like any of those other great readers of the Bible, but it sounded like something that they had never heard before, the audible voice of God from heaven making the strongest, most authoritative impression upon the people as possible. Now, what did God speak to them? Well, God spoke to them a bunch of laws. You heard me read them in the text that I read to you. And we're not going to go through one by one by one the laws this morning. We're going to save that to the next time we're in the book of Genesis. But you see, the following laws that God gave them were not invented at Mount Sinai. It's not like God was thinking for a few thousand years before the time of Moses, well, what should my laws be, this or that, I don't know. And then finally he made up his mind when they came to Mount Sinai. No, these laws were written in the hearts and minds of men and women even before God ever spoke them at Mount Sinai. I would say to you that from the time of Adam, man had a conscious awareness of at least the principles behind these laws. And why? Because God wrote them into the heart and mind of man because they reflect who God is and we're made in his image. I like what F.B. Meyer said about this. He said, and we'll quote here, It is wrong to steal or murder or covet, not primarily because these sins are forbidden by the Decalogue. They are forbidden by the Decalogue because they were previously forbidden by conscience. And they are forbidden by conscience because they are forbidden by the nature of things. And the nature of things is God. These commandments begin in the heart, in the mind, in the will of God. They were expressed in the conscience of man made in God's image. And then now at Sinai, they're codified in these Ten Commandments. Now, do you realize what I just told you now is so against the prevailing thinking of the age? The prevailing thinking of the modern age, it's not only in our generation, but a few previous generations as well. The prevailing thinking of the modern age says everybody just makes up their own morality that there is no universal morality among humankind. Let me tell you, that's a lie. One of the best treatments I've ever read on this is written by the famous author C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, makes a brilliant argument by looking across cultures, both ancient and modern, and showing that there is a common morality that's properly expressed among men and women. Now, look, I'm not trying to say that the morality is common on the fine details. I'll put it to you this way. Some cultures have said that a man can only have one wife. Other cultures have said that a man could have many wives. But no culture has said a man can have any woman he wants. There's been this morality in the culture. 
And so all have agreed that there's particular obligations to our family, that honesty is good, that, uh, that, that things are wrong, and that justice is good. You can't find me a culture where cowardice is declared good and bravery is declared to be bad. Because there are certain things written into the heart of man that are expressed in this morality. So there is a God-based moral code begun in heaven, written in the heart of man, and now here expressed by God at Mount Sinai in these Ten Commandments. And this sets God apart from the commonly worshipped gods of those days. Do you know the commonly worshipped gods of the Egyptians or the Canaanites or of the Babylonians or the other contemporary cultures? They often themselves were immoral gods. But God gives a moral code revealing it to us in his word that establishes, for example, that the people belong to God and not to Moses. This was not Moses' law. It's funny as Bible teachers and sometimes writers will commonly refer to that. The law of Moses, Moses' law. You know, it's really sort of a sloppy shorthand because it's not Moses' law at all. It's God's law. And Moses was under the law. Please understand that. Moses was under the law, not over the law. You see, nobody should think of themselves as being above the law. God is above all, and the law is the expression of his will. Therefore, everybody is under the law. This week, I was thinking about this, of course, in preparation for the message. And this week, I've done something that, well, maybe I did a long time ago in school. I can't really remember. But let me just say this. It's been a long time since I've broken out the Code of Hammurabi and read it. But I read the Code of Hammurabi this week. It's a famous example of an ancient law code. And many people say, yeah, who cares? The Babylonians under Hammurabi, they had their law code. The Egyptians had their law code. And here's the Israelites. They have their law code. And I'll admit there's some similarities between them. Matter of fact, the code of Hammurabi has the famous statement in it, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It says the same thing as the Israelite law code has. But when you look at the differences The foundational differences are even more dramatic. And you want to know the difference that speaks to me the most pointedly between the code of Hammurabi and the law that was revealed to us through Moses? It's simply this. If you look at the first many pages, the introduction to the code of Hammurabi, do you know who it praises? Hammurabi. He's so wonderful. He's the king. He's the one who bestows the law upon the people. The law belongs to Hammurabi because he is the king. He is above the law because he gives the law. Do you understand how different the law of Moses is? Moses is beneath the law because the law is the expression of God's will and God's heart. You see, no man is above the law. Do you realize that this thinking was very much in the heart and the mind of the founding fathers of the United States of America. Matter of fact, and I don't even know if you know this, but both Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin suggested that the great seal of the United States, which you know today is an eagle, their suggestion for the great seal of the United States would it be that it depict the scene of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. 
including the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. They suggested this because they very much saw America as a new Israel, not replacing God's ancient people, but along the same lines that God was bringing them out to a government where the law was above any man, where where there wasn't a king who was above the law, but that everybody was equal under the law. Matter of fact, around the perimeter of that seal, they had this statement, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, because that's what they believe. They believe that because the law was greater than any man, when a tyrant disobeyed the law, it was an act of obedience to resist it. Well, this is fascinating that Moses laid this forth, the importance and the supremacy of God over above his over above any man. But secondly, the fact that God revealed it to Israel and revealed it this way shows us this. That we need this moral law. Do you understand that? We need the moral authority of God to speak from heaven and to instruct us as to what is right and what is wrong. Now, I have to say, what's in my heart and what's in my mind on this topic, I don't know if I can fully express it into words, but this is what I know. I know that the very foundations of our culture are being disrupted. And people no longer, to any great degree, believe that we need to look to God and to his rules, his commands, as an ordering principle for our culture or for our lives. And instead, what we believe is this idea of follow your own heart. Let your own heart tell you what's right and wrong. And ladies and gentlemen, that's not enough. It's not enough for the individual life, and it's not enough for the culture as a whole. We need to know that there's a God in heaven who expects certain moral behavior and that there's consequences. There's good consequences for obeying those laws, and there's bad consequences for disobeying them. See, the Ten Commandments and all of the law of Moses as a whole gives to us a God-based moral code. It doesn't just tell us that certain behavior is unwise or unhelpful. It tells us this. It says God commands us to do certain things, and it says God tells us not to do other things. And in all of this, the whole implication behind this giving of the law is simply this. Okay, ready? God sees our obedience or our disobedience. Secondly, God measures our obedience or our disobedience. Thirdly, God rewards or punishes our obedience or our disobedience respectively. Now, honestly speaking, how many people do you know who actually live as if those things are true? But if the Ten Commandments are for real, those are foundational principles. And without a God-based moral code, it's difficult or even impossible to answer the question, why, in regard to any moral demand? Do not murder. Why? Uh, Do do not commit adultery. Why? Uh, Do do not bear false witness. Why? 
Let's just take do not steal. Do not steal. Well, why? Um, because it doesn't belong to you. Yeah, but I want what he has. Well, well, don't do it because um, it belongs to him. Yeah, but you know what? He has a lot and I have little, so I want what he has. Um, well, do, do it because you might get caught. I probably won't get caught. Well, do, don't do it because it's not nice. It's nice to me. Well, don't do it because it's not fair. It's fair to me. How do you answer the why behind do not steal if you can't say that there's a God in heaven who cares about this? The only thing you come back to is whether or not you get caught. Ladies and gentlemen, let's just be honest about this. Just between you and me. Forget about everything everybody else here. You and I are talking over a cup of coffee right here, right now. You know how it is. In our culture at large, the way many of us think is that the only thing wrong is getting caught. You do whatever you want to do. The only sin is in getting caught for it, not in the actual doing of it. Why do we think this way? Because we've abandoned this idea that there is an objective moral code that we have to answer to from God. You see, this idea of the God-based moral code seems to become less and less popular. And the tendency is increasingly to say, no, I'm not going to have a God-based moral code. I'm going to have a self-based moral code. My moral code is not going to be based in God. It's either going to be based in self or in the culture. I'll let the culture decide and tell me what's right and what's wrong. So if the culture says it's right, well, then it's right. If the culture says it's wrong, it's wrong. Or I'll just look to my own heart. If my own heart tells me it's right, it's right. If my own heart tells me it's wrong, it's wrong. You see, this persistent impulse to make our own moral code is nothing new. I, I remember this. I don't know why I remember it, but I remember that back in the 1980s, it was the late 80s, 1988 to be example, Ted Turner. Does anybody here remember Ted Turner? I'm not implying that he's dead. It's just he's passed from prominence in the scene. But Ted Turner, he's still around, but he was a great media mogul in the 80s and the 90s. He pretty much made CNN and cable networks what they were. But this man, Ted Turner, he, he, like many successful men, he somehow thought that his area of expertise went far beyond what it actually went. And he thought that, you know, he could really find his calling in life by telling what people should do. So here was his proposal in 1988 at the National Press Club. He, he released a statement saying, look, uh, let's get rid of the Ten Commandments. Let's replace them with Ted Turner's Ten Voluntary Initiatives. That has a real ring to it, doesn't it? X out the Ten Commandments, replace them with my voluntary initiatives. Can I read a few of them to you? How about this? Number one, I promise to have love and respect for the planet Earth and living things thereon, especially my fellow species, humankind. Uh, number three, I promise to have no more than two children or no more than my nation suggests. That's dark. Uh, number ten. I support the United Nations and its efforts to collectively improve, improve the conditions of the planet. But here's what he understood. He had absolutely no moral authority to call them commandments. So the best he could do is call them voluntary initiatives. And the other thing you'll notice in it, 
there is not a single bare mention or reference to God. It's man making it up as he goes along. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot improve on these Ten Commandments. They remain as God's wisdom to humanity, and they're received with blessing, and they're rejected at a very high price. So when it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, it tells us that God was giving a good gift to humanity. It tells us, as it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy, it's just, it's good. It's a good gift that God gave to humanity, and they're good. They're good because they show us the wise and moral guidance and government of God. They're good because they show us the need of mankind for this moral uh, moral guidance. It gives us a way to teach morality, and that's a very good thing. They're good because the world would be so much better if they were obeyed. Can I ask you just to fantasize for a moment? Fantasize on this, a world in which the Ten Commandments are obeyed. How much of your newspaper would you just throw out in the morning if the world obeyed the Ten Commandments? Think about what a staggering thing that would be. Or how about this? Forget about the Ten Commandments. How about if the world just obeyed one of the Ten Commandments? I'll give you two. Here's three commandments. Um, Do not steal. uh, Do not murder. And do not commit adultery. Any one of those three commands, think of what a revolution would be if uh, 90% of those sins could just be knocked out right away. If people kept those Ten Commandments. They're good gifts from God. These Ten Commandments are good for all of humanity, not only given to Israel, but given to all of humanity. And they're good when they're promoted and held as ideals even when they're not perfectly obeyed. I want to stress that. You don't have to perfectly obey the Ten Commandments to see the value in them and how we need to understand them for today. So God spoke all these words, and they're important for us to know. They're important for us to receive. They're important for us to understand and obey. But we do it all with a biblical perspective. And what do I mean by biblical? Well, just by understanding that the last word on the law and the Ten Commandments isn't found in Exodus chapter 20. That the rest of the Bible speaks to us about God's law, especially the New Testament speaks to us about God's law. And understanding in total, both in the book of Exodus and in the entire Bible, we understand this. And please listen, if you get nothing else from this this morning, please get this. The Ten Commandments are not presented to us as a way to get to heaven. The Bible never presents the Ten Commandments that says, if you do these things, then you will get to heaven. And your going to heaven is based on your performance in regard to these things. No. The covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, the law, including the Ten Commandments, was the first and a very important aspect of that covenant. But it was not the only aspect of the covenant. The second great aspect of that covenant was sacrifice. Sacrifice. Do you understand what I mean by that? That the blood of an innocent victim would cover over the failure to keep the commandments. When God gave the law 
He also gave sacrifice. Why did he give sacrifice? Because he knew they could never keep the law. And they knew that they would have to have sin atoned for by the sacrifice of an innocent victim. And every animal that was sacrificed in faith looked forward in faith to the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's so important to realize that for all the good that the law was given for, it was not given to show us the way to heaven. Instead, it was given to show us our need for a substitutionary sacrifice. In this sense, the law of God is like a mirror that comes before your face. Let's say your face is really dirty, but you don't know it. Have you ever had that embarrassing thing? You know, your face, just something weird on your face, some smudge or messed up thing, or I don't know what it would be, something really wrong with your face, but you don't know it. When you walk around, you just think everything's great, but everybody's looking at you strange. You don't know why, what's wrong, what's off in this picture. And then finally you look into a mirror and your heart skips a beat. Oh, my heavens, I've been walking around looking like that. You never knew it until the mirror showed it to you. Do you understand? The law is like a mirror. It shows you, so to speak, I'm using an illustration. The law shows you that your face is dirty so that you can go to Jesus and get it clean. I mean, that's simple, isn't it? But you would have never known that your face was dirty unless the law showed you your need. And Jesus, through his work of sacrifice, is the one that cleanses it. But also understand this. If we're taking a look at the Ten Commandments in a big biblical perspective, we understand that they can also be summarized as Jesus summarized them in Matthew chapter 22. Would you turn there in your Bibles, please? Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 35. In those verses, Jesus summarized the law. He brought the Ten Commandments down to two. And he said, listen, I can boil all these ten down to two commandments. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Isn't that wonderful? You can take all ten commandments and boil them down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you act rightly towards God by doing that, you're going to obey the first four commandments. And then what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you obey that second commandment, you'll obey the six commandments that you should obey. It's beautiful. Now, here's the trick, though. Boiling the ten down to two doesn't make them any easier to obey. It makes it easier to understand, simpler to receive. But is there anybody here who can say, yes, every day of my life, I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind? Is there anybody here who can say, yes, every day of my life, I have loved my neighbor as myself? You see, what I'm trying to say, Jesus gave us a valuable summation of the law that made it so much easier to understand, but it doesn't make it possible for us to obey it as a way of righteousness. This is what we do know. There was only one person ever to obey the law perfectly. Do you know who that was? Of course, you know, it was Jesus. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. 
And he lived his entire life without breaking any one of the Ten Commandments, any one of the Two Commandments, any one of God's laws at all. He lived a perfect life before God. Now, what would you think if it was possible to take Jesus's righteousness, his credit for keeping the law perfectly and have that applied to your account? May I put it in financial terms? You're bankrupt. He has an extremely high positive balance. Wouldn't it be wonderful to transfer his credit to your account? And then you would be in a positive balance. His resources are his, his assets are yours at that point. Wouldn't that be a good deal? Did you know the Bible tells us that's exactly what happens for the person who repents and believes? May I read it to you? Here in Romans chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, notice. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you realize that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in you as the righteousness of Jesus is credited to you if you'll repent and believe, if you will be among those who repent and believe. It's as if you kept the Ten Commandments. It's as if you kept the two commandments because Jesus's righteousness is credited unto you. Now, let me wrap up with this final idea. From the perspective of the entire Bible, we can say that the law of God has three great purposes and uses. Ready for these three? Number one, it's a guardrail keeping humanity on a moral path. Is it possible to jump over the guardrail? Yes. Is it possible to dismantle the guardrail? Yes. Will you have a lot of crashes? Yes. I believe that's where our culture is now and increasingly going. The guardrail of the Ten Commandments is a gift to us that we're sadly neglecting more and more. Secondly, the law of God is like a mirror. As I discussed before, it shows you that you need a savior, that you need an atoning sacrifice on your behalf. And I point you towards Jesus who died on the cross and bore your sin and your guilt in his own sacrifice on the cross. And then finally, it's not only a guardrail, it's not only a mirror, but it's also a guidebook. It shows you and I right now the heart and the mind of God and how he wants us to live. This is his desire for his people. So how does that all flesh out? That's what we're going to talk about next time when we're here and go through the laws one by one, first in the four and then in the six, and see what God's word has to tell us as a guardrail, as a mirror, and as a guidebook for you and for I. When I pray now at the conclusion of this message, I'm going to pray with the recognition that there may be a few people here, maybe more than a few. You've never repented and believed. 
for whatever reason, you believe that you can make your way to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments or at least doing the best you can or doing better than the people around you. I'm here to tell you, no, I'm here to warn you, it won't work. What you need is you need to have the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account, and that's not done by earning it. It's done by believing it and receiving it, by repenting and believing, repenting and receiving. That's what God calls you to do right here, right now. In my closing prayer that I'm going to pray in just a moment, I'm going to give you an invitation to do that. And I'm going to ask you that if you want to make that decision to repent and believe that you raise your hand and that you follow with me quietly as I pray a prayer, ask God if he wants you to do that right here right now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your law, for your great moral instruction that you give to us. And Lord, we understand that we haven't always appreciated it. We certainly haven't always obeyed it. But we recognize that it's good. We recognize that we need it. We recognize, Lord, that we're under your authority. So now, Jesus, at this time in this place, I want to pray especially for those who have seen their dirty face in the mirror of your law. And they feel now that they must trust in Jesus. I pray that you give them the, the courage to do so, the courage to decide right here and right now that they want to repent and believe. Now, our heads are bowed and eyes are reverently closed in prayer around this room. I simply want to ask who here today for the first time says, I want to repent and believe. If that's you, raise your hand. Maybe you're doing it for the first time. Maybe you've done it before, but you've fallen so far away from that decision that you feel you need to do it again. Who here now says, I will repent and believe? Please raise your hand. God bless you back there. Others here today. Bless you back there on my left. Others here this morning. You need this. I I won't even appeal to you whether or not you want it. Do it whether or not you want it. Do it because you know you need it. Anybody else here this morning? Bless you. Bless you. Father, I pray for those who have raised their hands. And I pray that you give them the courage now to repent and to believe. To pray this prayer after me. Jesus, I know that I've broken your holy law. But I also know that you made a sacrifice for lawbreakers. I don't put my trust in my own obedience. But I put my trust in Jesus. And what he did for me at the cross. Fill me with Jesus' righteousness. Wipe away my sins. And give me new life in him. I need it from you, Lord. And I receive it now as you promise it. In Jesus' name. Amen.